Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 12 in our Peter Bible Study podcast and our second episode in the book of 2 Peter. This episode is entitled, The Absolutely Certain Word of Scripture, where we'll discuss 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, these are some of the most important verses in the Bible on the inspiration authority of Scripture. Uh, we're going to find out some of the actual mechanisms of, of the, the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, by which we have a perfect record of truth in the Bible. And we're going to see somewhat from Peter's words what role this perfect record of Scripture has, how it's even more certain than anything you could live through, uh, even being on the Mount of Transfiguration and seeing Christ radiantly glorified, it's still better to have Scripture because that was just a one-time experience. But we have in the Scripture the Word of God written that we can read day after day after day while we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So uh, we're going to talk today about the inspiration authority of Scripture. Yeah, it's great. Looking at Scripture and what it says to us about the Scripture that we love yeah. so dearly. Yeah. Well, let me read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Andy, Peter speaks of his commitment to remind his hearers continually in verses 12 through 15. Why do you think we're so prone to forget true and helpful things from the Word of God? I think it's part of the corruption of sin. I think we have uh, forgetful minds. I think there is a culpable forget forgetfulness that comes on us where we should remember things that we don't. But then there are just some things that are just part of the limitations of our minds, that many things happen and then they just go out of our minds. Uh, central to this are the truths of the Word of God and the truths of, in this case, sanctification, of making every effort at, to add to your faith, goodness, and the goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, all that, those virtues that he talks about, mm -hmm. and how these qualities should be in us and increasing. This is just healthy salvation. People forget these things. And even if they haven't forgotten them, they fade some. In our, in our estimation, we get distracted by everyday life and things fade. And so the role of a good teacher preacher in a healthy local church, mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, is reminding. 
for the most part, the people you're teaching already know most of what you're going to say. They've heard it in some form or fashion before. So you're doing a lot of healthy reminding mm -hmm. again and again, and that is fine. Now I think it's essential for pastors to be skillful in that reminding ministry, that they don't say literally the same words week after week. People would tune them out at that point. So there's a skillful way of reminding uh, people of things they already know. But I would say, 90% of the things that I share with 90% of the people in our church, they've heard them before in some form or fashion. And I don't have any shame in that. I just want to remind them again of these basic theological themes. That's so helpful. And we'll talk a little more in just a moment practically about how pastors might be able to, to do that very thing in their ministry to their church. But specifically in verse 12, what does Peter mean when he says they are established in the truth. Mm -hmm. So they're already born again. They already um, they have come to faith in Christ. Uh, it's similar to 1 John where he says, you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you knows the truth. I do not write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. It's very interesting. It's like, well, why are you writing us? You know, it's like, you already know all these things. Well, I think, first of all, John, when he's talking about the anointing we have from the Spirit, I think what it means is that genuinely born again people, genuinely regenerate people, immediately, as soon as they hear for the first time actual biblical truths, they know it's right. They put their seal to it. They say, yeah, that's right. I got it. That's, you know, they didn't know it before. Mm. But the indwelling spirit testifies with their spirits that that is truth and they love it and delight in it. That's when they hear it for the first time. Uh, here he says, you're already firmly established in the truth you, you now have, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus mm. and of repentance and faith in his name and the forgiveness of sins. These are things they already have and they are rooted and firmly established in those truths. I'm still gonna remind you about it. Yeah, it's not harmful to him and it's, it's good for them to be reminded <clears throat> yeah. of these things. So Peter also says that he thinks it's right to stir up or wake up mm -hmm. his hearers by way of reminder in verse 13. Mm -hmm. How does being reminded of foundational truths act like a wake up call for sure. Christians? And why do we tend to go to sleep in certain areas of the Christian life? Yeah, that's a great way of looking at, I think, really excellent preaching. Uh, you know, fundamentally, excellent preaching is an encounter with the living God through the words of the text, anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. So we're encountering truth of God from the preaching by the Holy Spirit. And so there's this stirring up, um, this sense of refreshing. So something was, was maybe a little dormant or maybe mm -hmm. it had faded some, and now all of a sudden, it gets, it becomes vivid again. Maybe another image might be somewhat like the, the Sistine Chapel, which was, I don't know what the right word would be, refurbished some time ago from all of the urban soot or, mm. or just the airborne pollutants that were, that were in the air handling system there in, in Rome in the Sistine Chapel. Um, and some really expert people were able to take off what did not belong to Michelangelo's masterpiece on the Sistine Chapel. And then all of a sudden, the colors become vivid and intense and details that had been covered over by this, these pollutants, this, this uh, soot or something like that, uh, suddenly are, are standing forth in clear display. I think that's what it's like with preaching. Mm. You knew that God was great or that Christ loved loved you and died for you, that your sins are forgiven. You're going to heaven when you die, all these things, but they got covered over by soot, by the soot of life, by everyday 
life. And then a preacher comes in and skillfully cleans off all of that garbage. And all of a sudden, the original truths shine radiantly again. So that's an image that I have here uh, as he talks about being reminded of things they already have. Mm. Now, practically speaking, and you spoke to this a moment ago, but I wonder if maybe we could even dial in a little more here. How should pastors balance reminding hearers of foundational truths and mm -hmm. teaching them new and harder truths? Mm -hmm. And how does the ministry of the Word help here? I'm thinking specifically maybe even for you that verse-by-verse -verse exposition. How sure. does that help you in approaching this topic? Right. Well, first of all, I've made a commitment openly to the church and to anyone who knows me and to our staff, to U.S., that I will preach the simple, clear gospel every single week. Mm to some degree, but it's not going to take up a large percentage of my time. So let's say I have 40 minutes to preach, that's about my norm. Um, I'm gonna spend about five minutes every week explaining the incarnation, that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, uh, lived a sinless life, uh, did miracles, taught amazing teachings such as no one had ever heard before, mm -hmm. but especially that he died on the cross in our place as a substitute under the wrath of God, and that he was physically raised from the dead on the third day, and that through repentance and faith in Jesus, our sins are completely forgiven. See, I did it again. Um, I'm going to do that every week. So for me, I feel like that's milk. That's the essence of milk. Fundamentally, it's the basic, basics of the Christian life that you need to know. However, from the author of Hebrews, we know we can't just stay at milk forever. Mm. You know, by now, he says, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be much further along. And so we got to move up out of milk. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow the text where it goes. So, you know, right now we're in the book of Job mm -hmm. as I preach through. And I'm just going to be reading the three chapters. I'm going to draw forth the things that are said there and try to understand what those teachings are. And it's not easy in the book of Job because mm -hmm. some of what they say aren't, isn't true. And so you got to sort through it, but that's just the hard work of exegetical preaching. But if you do it and if you follow passage after passage, chapter after chapter, it's going to bring you into all the great and small doctrines of Christianity. So that's where I would advocate sequential exposition of Scripture because it's going to, you're going to cover everything. Yeah. You used an incredibly helpful image even of sharpening our palate, so to mm -hmm. speak, this past Sunday. And I think mm -hmm. that's just a gift that uh, pastors have as well, or a responsibility mm -hmm. to continually be teaching how to how to go back to the Word and mm -hmm. test the things that even the preacher says and say, does this align with the Word of God? How does yeah. this help us to understand more the full yeah. counsel of God's Word? Yeah, I think it was Job twelve eleven. It says, does not the ear test words like mm. the tongue te tests food? And so, you know, we're going to be like culinary judges or like the Bereans that take mm -hmm. everything and, and make certain that what they they uh, it, what they heard is actually. In scripture. Yeah. So we want people to do that for sure. Absolutely. Well, what gives Peter a sense of urgency in these verses in 13 and 14? Well, <clears throat> I think he's thinking about his own death. Uh, he says that very soon, Jesus has made it plain to me, very soon I'm going to lay aside the tent of this body. So that's a really powerful image, tent being a temporary dwelling place. Paul uses the exact same image in 2 Corinthians 5, that we live in a tent, but there's a permanent dwelling coming. That's our resurrection bodies. Mm. So Peter knows he's going to die. Jesus in John 21 made it very, very plain that at some point he would be seized and taken somewhere that he did not want to go and he would die, um, you know, a martyr's death. And so he is certain that that time is drawing near. And so he's got very little time. Uh, but just like Paul in 
Philippians 1, the reason he wants to stay on earth is fruitful labor with brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter is an apostle, like Paul, an apostle. And so he wants to do everything he can to get people ready for his departure, to make them firmly established in Christian doctrine. Now, verse 15 says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, after his death, presumably, mm -hmm. yeah. you may be able at any time to recall these things. Mm -hmm. How does this verse show the commitment every pastor should have to teaching the Word of God consistently mm -hmm. to the flock of Christ? Yeah, so it's, I think it's the things we've been saying here that I, I want to repeat things so frequently that people really have a strong sense of these themes. Um, it's not the first time that they hear it that they really understand it. We think about some of the deeper doctrinal commitments that we have, such as God's sovereignty and salvation. It's not the first time you hear that, that things click into place. Um, but the, there'll be other aspects of it, like the complex doctrine of providence, that God sovereignly controls the events of our lives, or the, uh, the issues of suffering, like we're seeing in the book of Job. These things take repetition. And what Peter's saying is, I wanna be certain that we've been over them enough from enough angles and repeated it frequently that you're even more firmly established than you now are. I want you to be able to recall them, to bring them to mind after I die. So let's talk a little bit then about uh, verse 16. What does Peter mean by cleverly devised myths? What's mm -hmm. the relationship between these myths and perhaps cults or other non-Christian religions? So I think we would have to say to some degree that those words represent every false religious system that there ever has been or is right now on the earth or ever will be. Um, so every world religion, non-Christian world religion, is in some, in, in some way a cleverly devised myth. I think you could add in many cases a supernatural dimension that, that demons, that Satan himself get behind the very powerfully popular world religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and the, the world, worldwide cults like Mormonism, and do even perhaps supernatural things like it seems happened with Artemis of the Ephesians where her image fell from heaven. We don't know what that's all about, but something happened that really moved the, the pagans to start a religion mm. and build a huge, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world temple to Artemis of the Ephesians because there was a supernatural dimension. I think that demons are God and goddess impersonators behind world religions and cults. But here we're looking more at the doctrine. What, what is the doctrine of Mormonism? It's a cleverly invented myth. Mm. That's what it is. I mean, in that case, Mormonism was plagiarized from a historical novel written by a congregational minister, Ethan Smith, in the 1820s that Joseph Smith hijacked and turned into the Book of Mormon. Cleverly invented myth, hmm. but it is a myth. And then Islam had its own cleverly invented myth about Muhammad in the cave and the angel kind of assaulting him and then telling him to recite Quran, you know, and, and then this moralistic right and wrong kind of book that came based on Christianity because it was several, many centuries after Christ. Mm. Uh, it's a cleverly invented myth, very popular though worldwide yeah. and, and on down. So Paul, uh, what Peter is saying here is Christianity is not like that. Christianity, and Paul says it very plainly in Galatians, I didn't make this up. This gospel was not something that man made up. It was revealed from heaven. So this is not some cleverly invented myth, this Christianity. 
Now, Peter also says that he and others were eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. How did that affect uh, their making known the power and coming of Jesus? Right. So the, the term eyewitnesses gives a real sense of a legal, like a, a court trial or a legal trial, where witnesses could be summoned to the witness stand and sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And they can say, all right, what did you see? The apostles were, among other things, eyewitnesses of the incarnation, uh, of the death, I mean, not the birth of Jesus, but certainly of Christ incarnate in the body, asleep or eating or drinking or, you know, showing pain, uh, going through all these things. They were eyewitnesses of his physical life. They were eyewitnesses of his death and they were eyewitnesses of his bodily resurrection. First John 1 makes this very plain. That which we have seen with our eyes, what we have handled, what we have physically interacted with, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so what we're saying is Christianity is based on actual history. Hmm. The same is not true of Buddhism or Hinduism, nor is it true of Islam. They're mostly theological, spiritual systems of thought. We are tied to a historical figure so that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is worthless. We have no Christian faith. So Peter's saying, yeah, but we did see him. He was dead and he was raised from the dead and we saw him. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his glory. And he goes on, really, it seems to outline maybe two more vignettes of mm. Jesus' life that they were also privy mm. to uh, when he references uh, this statement, right? The mm -hmm. voice that was born to him. Uh, it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then in 18, he says, mm -hmm. we were with him on the holy mountain. Talk yes. a little bit about these, these verses, maybe the significance of that mm -hmm. statement and how this would help. Christians in their lives. Well, what he's talking about is the is the Mount of Transfiguration in which Jesus was revealed in heavenly glory to three men, uh, to Peter, James, and John. And they were selected from among the 12 who were themselves selected from the large mass of disciples who were following Jesus everywhere. So the 12 were chosen as the apostles and then three of the 12 were chosen for a variety of special moments with Jesus and this mm -hmm. is one of them. So they went up a mountain and there, um, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became radiantly white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, it was said. Um, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. And then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, a bright cloud, and a voice came from the bright cloud saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what Peter's saying is, we were there. We mm. saw it. We, we specifically saw his glory. Now, what's interesting, in all of the accounts, the synoptic gospels, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see what? The kingdom of God coming in power. It's an interesting statement. So that revelation of Jesus in heavenly glory was a foretaste of the second coming of Christ and of the kingdom of God coming in power. And mm. Jesus is the focus of the kingdom. He's the king. And so they got to see this radiant glory. And what Peter's saying is we weren't following cleverly invented myths or tales. We saw his heavenly glory ourselves with our own eyes. Now, what Peter, James, and John did was they fell at Jesus' feet as though dead. They were terrified. And Jesus touched them gently and said, don't be afraid. 
you know. It's interesting, as they were coming down the mountain, he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until after Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, guess what? Now he's after. It's after he's raised from the dead, so Peter's openly talking about it. <laughs> he's just like, let me tell Now you. it's time yes. to tell, but he's saying, I saw his glory. Yeah. And I think, you know, thinking back to what you said about this eyewitness language and how important that is in a court trial, how important it is for there to be those who've witnessed things. Uh, there's another uh, type of revelation that's compared in the following verses. What two forms of revelation are being compared uh, in the verses we just looked at and then in 19 and 21? And what's the significance of these words more fully confirmed in right. verse 19? All right, so first of all, you have this revelation of the glory of God in space and time occurring at one particular moment. So in space and time, there was a, there was a specific location, a you know, GPS location. They didn't have GPSs back then. There was a mountain. There was a place. And there was a time. And God came down in glory at that moment. Like Mount Sinai would be like that, mm -hmm. or other times. That God came, showed up, appeared in, in radiant glory. But then he's gone. It's over. The same thing happens with the crossing of the Jordan River, all right, where they cross as on dry ground, but they had to go back and get some rocks out of the center of the river and stack them up because after they were on the other side of the Jordan, the Jordan came back as normal at flood stage. Hmm. And it's like, did that really happen? Well, we are on this side of the river, so somehow we got here. But, you know, the stones were to remind them saying, we, you know, we crossed on dry ground. The reason it was necessary is that after the miracle's over, it's it almost like it never happened. Mm. If you weren't, and if you weren't there, all you have is eyewitness verbal accounts. Let me tell you what we just saw. Mm. And actually, they weren't allowed to talk about it until after Christ rose from the dead. Mm. So they they have so the first of the revelation, the special revelations of God, happens at a certain time in a certain place and never again. Never again. The second is scripture, in which accounts like that, like Mount Sinai, like the Mount of Transfiguration, like other times, are written down in timeless scripture and handed on from generation to generation to generation, the inerrant written word of God. These are the two forms of special revelation by God. Now, what Peter's saying is the second is more certain than the first. It's more certain. You're like, I can't imagine. Why would that be? Well, it's because you weren't there. Right. And it's never going to happen again. Even if you went, you know, to Palestine today, you flew there and you got to some place where, and it doesn't say in the Bible where the Mount of Transfiguration is. It gives you no indication, just a mountain in Palestine. Hmm. But let's imagine an angel could lead you and say, by the way, this is it. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. What will you see? It would look exactly like any of the other mountains in the region. And nothing was happening there. Hmm. It was a moment, and mm. now it's gone. Same thing would be true of Mount Sinai or any of these other places that God graced with his glorious presence and never came again in that way. So what do you have? What we have better is the written account of it that we can read on Tuesday morning or on Wednesday evening or four, four months from now, and it reads the same as it ever did. Mm. It reads the same as it did our, that our great-great-grandparents read. It, it never changes. And Peter says, of the two, the second is more certain. The second is better. Wow. Now, Peter urges his readers, I think because of this, to pay attention to the prophetic word in verse 19. Mm -hmm. How should we take this command to heart and act on it? Well, what we need to do is give ourselves fully to the study of the word of God. We need to study it. We need to, as the author of Hebrews says, pay more careful attention to what we've heard. We need to read the Bible. 
We need to read it. We need to memorize it. And this is why, as you know, Wes, I spend so much time memorizing scripture. I mean, I'm memorizing Mark right now, and so these words are just flowing out of me, the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm literally quoting mm. it to you because I go over it literally every day. And, and everyone has their own way, but you need to have a way of taking God's word into you. You need to have a quiet time. You need to feed your soul on the word of God. Why? Because as we said earlier, you forget. Vivid things fade. They get covered over with the soot of sin in everyday life. Mm. And they're not as vivid as they were a week ago or a year ago. So you need to scrape them off and, and make them vivid again by reading God's word. And so I'm, I'm just saying what we need to do is pay more careful attention to the written word of God. Study it carefully. And it's deep and some things are hard to understand. As Peter's going to say in the third chapter about some things Paul writes. So we need to give ourselves fully to the study of the written word of God. And I think that imagery that he uses of a lamp shining in a dark place just reminds us of Psalm 119, speaking yeah. of God's word, how we can keep our way pure, how we can not sin against God, how we can have light for our path to know right. how we should walk. Uh, yeah, God's so much, you know, the battle of salvation is one in the brain, it's one in the mind and the heart. You know, we, we're told in Ephesians 4, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorances in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That's four different statements about the mind and the heart. So a dark mind leads to a dark life. Turn it around, a dark life came from a dark mind. It mm -hmm. came from bad thinking. So this darkness, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That's the darkness of, of ignorance and sinful thinking. And so the scripture is a light shining in a dark place. And then he uses another light bearing image, which is a day star, morning star rising yeah. in your hearts, which portends a future day, uh, uh, you know, coming. It's, it's still night, but the day is coming. So what that tells me is we are going to be so far beyond biblical insight. We're going to be so far beyond sound exegesis and good preaching and teaching when we get to heaven. All of the truths will still be true and we will know them. But I don't see us studying grammar and adjectives in heaven. We will be taught directly by God. Now, I may be wrong about that. Maybe we'll be reading the book. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus' words will never pass away. But I think what it means is all the things he said were true will be so clearly, visibly true in heaven mm. and will be directly taught by God. In any case, there is a full day coming of truth in which we are going to be swimming in the glory of God forever in heaven. That day is coming. Until then, we get the Bible. Yeah. We read this day star, this morning star by studying scripture. That's so helpful. Now, why is it important that no prophecy of Scripture is from one's own interpretation? Mm -hmm. uh, is this referring to the prophet himself or the reader of the prophecy? How should we think about verse 20 here? Okay. Um, what does your translation say? ESV, I think. Verse 20 says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Keep reading. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Okay. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by All the right, Holy so Spirit. All right, so given the second part of what you just read, it seems like what Peter's talking about here is, is the origin of Scripture. Where did Scripture come from? So the way I picture it is this. No, no Scripture author ever got up that day, stretched and said, I think I'm going to write timeless Scripture today. You know today. what I'm going to do today? I think I'll write yeah. timeless Scripture Good. that will never pass away today. They didn't do it. Hmm. They just, David wrote just the next psalm. 
Paul wrote another epistle to another church. I bet Paul wrote dozens, if not hundreds of scraps of paper and epistles that never made it in the Bible. Never made it. There's indications in his, in his existing epistles that there are other epistles that we don't have. And so it's not like they're bad or whatever. It's just that they weren't scripture. And the Holy Spirit knows what he gives birth to. And what he does is he gives birth to scripture in the heart of the scripture writer and, and moves in. And Peter's talking here about how that happens. But I'm, I'm saying at the very beginning of the process, it didn't start with the will of man. It didn't start with man saying, I'm writing scripture today that people will still be reading two millennia from now. It just doesn't happen. Uh, the origin of it is not in the will of man or the will of the prophet. They didn't up and say, I'm writing scripture today. Yeah. And that's what verse 21 says. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So as we think about this passage as a whole and maybe any final thoughts you have for us on it, why is it so vital for us to know this mm -hmm. about Scripture? Yeah, this is, this is absolutely vital. So first of all, we have to understand that uh, the phrase, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, shows us that the Bible is very much like Jesus. It is an incarnation. It is fully human and fully divine. Mm -hmm. The Bible is. Every word in scripture is a human word written by a human author. So what I just said, don't misunderstand. The, the writers of scripture did not decide I'm writing eternal scripture today, but what they did do is they wrote things. And maybe even unbeknownst to them, while they were writing, the Holy Spirit was carrying their pen along and moving them and guarding them and causing them to write only certain words and not other words. So the Holy Spirit just used their personalities, a 100% human book, and he, and he used their immediate circumstances and he used their relationships with the people they were writing with. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This kind of thing. And their personalities would come out. Different personalities, different writing style. Isaiah writes at such a high, polished, poetical level. Very different than some of the other prophets in the way they wrote. And so God used the prophet's own talents and vocabulary and skills and immediate circumstances, but then flowed far beyond that. They wrote things they didn't understand. They were carried along, the scripture says, this text says, by the Holy Spirit. I think of it this way, like a ship that puts up its sails. Like think of one of those old clipper ships mm -hmm. with multi-masts and, and all kinds of spars and rigging and sails of many types. And I'm not a nautical uh, historian, but there's different types of sails. And when they really wanted to move fast, they'd put out every stitch of canvas so that they could catch the wind. And then the wind would come and fill those, those canvas sails and they'd billow out and get taut. And then the ship would start to move and it would move along a certain vector and, and it would just go in that direction. So here's what I think. The author, like a Paul writing to, to the Galatians or to the Thessalonians or like Luke writing the gospel of Luke or writing the book of Acts would put up the sails of his personality. He would do research, let's say, talking to many eyewitnesses, and he would do his process. And then he would sit down and put pen to paper or parchment or whatever they wrote on. And, and then the Holy Spirit would move them where he wanted them to go. Sometimes, like in the case of Daniel, as we've seen earlier, they'd write things and they'd put their pen down and say, what was that? 
I don't think they fully understood what they just wrote. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David wrote that by the Spirit. Did David understand that one of his own descendants would be God in the flesh? I don't know what he understood, but he wrote the words. And so the Holy Spirit superintended the process whereby scripture happened, guarding the authors from error. So that's where we get the doctor of inerrancy. There are no errors in the original autographs or original manuscript, no errors whatsoever. Uh, guarded by the Holy Spirit and covering all of the topics God the Holy Spirit wanted covered. Mm. It's amazing. And that's what we have in this library of the Bible, 66 books covering every topic we need for life and godliness. That's what the Holy Spirit's done. Praise God for the gift of His Word. And, you know, as I think about these podcasts, that's our hope, mm -hmm. that we would examine the Word of God, but also that we would delight in the fact mm -hmm. that God has made Himself known to us and given us those things so that we might obey Him. Amen. Well, this has been episode 12 in our Peter Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 13, entitled The Danger and Final Judgment of False Teachers, where we'll continue in 2 Peter discussing 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.